Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The following episode contains disturbing and graphic accounts of survivor experiences. It may not be suitable for younger audiences. Please listen with care. Hey there. Welcome back to Tracked in Treatment. I'm your host, Rebecca Mellinger. And I'm Caroline Cole. In last week's episode, we heard survivors recount their arrival at the doors of Provo Canyon School. They shared the moment they realized it wasn't the school they thought it was. Immediately with the strip searches and cavity searches and even the strange investment phase, which is somehow supposed to treat their behavior, it became evidently clear it's not a school at all. So the next natural question is, who started this place? And how have they been able to flourish for so long? We are coming up on 50 years of operation. Over the next three episodes, we're going to dive into the history of PCS, who founded it and why, how much money did they make, were the intentions always so evil, and what was the impetus for the abusive nature of the care? This episode is all about the numbers. The financial windfall of those operating at the top often concern more about their bottom line than those down the line. By the end, we may have no definite answers, but we will ask the question, how much money is being made at the expense of struggling youth? In this episode, we're going to follow the money because there's more going on in Provo than treatment. There was big business too. When Jack Williams arrived in Provo, Utah in 1969, he had a few ideas in his head. Jack Williams had run a number of juvenile programs in California. That's Mark Soler, a lawyer who was part of a lawsuit against Provo in 1978. But we'll learn more about him in the lawsuit later. He uh, decided to branch out and start Provo Canyon in Utah as a way of creating his own program. 
He had been in the field of residential treatment for a few years already, accepting state wards from the California courts for $500 per ward per month. He was ambitious. Now, it should be noted that he had no background in psychology, education, or childcare. However, he saw the potential for a lucrative investment in the world of congregate care. He uh, called it a private program because it was a way of avoiding any monitoring by any state agency. Uh, and they called it a school because it had a, a benevolent name to it. It's not clear why Williams chose Utah as the location for his new business. He must have realized that there was money to be made. Recent federal investments that were supposed to go towards community-based care meant that there was a lot of funding to throw around without a solid industry ready to receive it. We asked Dr. Reamer where all the money was coming from. Federal government said, basically, we're overusing institutions for kids who are having a tough time. We want to create community-based alternatives, and we're going to create an incentive for the states to design and implement those programs. And that got the ball rolling big time. Enter Robert Christ, a prominent local psychiatrist who sat on the board of the Utah Psychiatric Association. He had also been living in California with his wife and three sons attending UCLA and had recently moved to Utah to open a private practice and be closer to family. The serendipitous timing meant that both Williams and Christ were new in town, looking for like-minded partners and opportunities. They were both members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, the predominant religion in the area. Chris took a liking to Williams. He found him a man of faith and ambition. He accepted the offer to act as consultant, and in 1971, they decided to create a program in Mapleton, Utah, that would offer year-round residential services to boys. The goal? To fill educational needs and address behavioral problems. Jack Williams described it as unique in that it fills a need not met by any other public or private institution in Utah. The city pushed back against the proposed project. City attorneys argued that although the program had the word school in its title, it seemed more like a juvenile detention home to them. They were adamant. The name doesn't matter to the court, only the intended use. And zoning regulations did not allow for an institution with this intended use. This failed to stop Williams and Christ, who would go on to open the doors of the all-boys treatment facility just a few months later. But within the year, the facility would capture the attention of the community again when a 15-year-old boy, Fred Barney, was found running barefoot with shackles around his ankles, and a 13-year-old boy, Robert LeBaron, was discovered chained to a house axle by his wrist. The community was scared of the kids housed in these facilities and the treatment they were receiving. When the town investigated, students reported being chained as punishment while sleeping, while studying, and while being outdoors receiving fresh air. But strangely enough, Oak Hill School would not shut down because of abuse like shackling children. Their ultimate demise was a fight with the town because of zoning when they tried to expand. The Utah Supreme Court, in a majority decision, ruled against Oak Hill School, leaving the facility in violation of Mapleton City zoning ordinances. With 32 kids currently at the facility, they would be forced to move 20 minutes away to Provo, Utah. They would name the new facility Provo Canyon School.
let's take a look at this. Within the decade of opening, amid multiple allegations of abuse and a constant war with licensing, Provo was able to increase its profits through a mix of private funding, low overhead, and constant new recruitment. Money talks, especially when the length of stay directly affects the profit. Most students are sent by their parents and covered by insurance who pay out millions in coverage. The longer a student was enrolled, the more money PCS and Christ and Williams could collect. Each of the owners had an ownership share, meaning that they got a percentage of the profit that Provo Canyon School made as a private corporate entity every year. And they also got a big salary. So I remember, and I don't remember which of the owners, but I remember having a W-2 form for the year before the trial, which showed that the owner made $163,000 in income for the year. This was, remember, this was uh, 40 years ago. And among the jury members in Salt Lake City, for many of them, that was 10 times their annual salary. In today's dollars, that would be a very, very large amount of money. The owners were making a pile of money off of this, which has been a problem with many of the private facilities. Fast forward 20 years to the year 2000. Provo Canyon School has traded hands a couple of times, first to Charter Medical, then to Universal Health Services, or UHS, an international corporation pulling in over $11.5 billion annually from its library of facilities. And with the original owners, Williams and Christ, no longer involved, the cash cow simply went up the ladder. These new owners, less mom and pop and more corporate giant, familiar with the ins and outs of big business. They're a publicly traded for-profit company and have an IPO, meaning stocks and bonds. Big, big business. My belief is the objective is to increase profits. You know, it's publicly traded, so... That's not a secret. That, that's what you have to do when you're running a publicly traded company. Healthcare, it's a little tricky because you have patient care and you have other very important factors. Brian Blum worked for UHS as recently as 2019 as chief financial officer of Copper Hills Youth Center, the sister facility of Provo Canyon School, but left the company after seeing a culture of dishonesty and questionable business practices. My feeling with UHS, well, my feeling with Copper Hills is, yes, we cared about those other things and we got pressure on those other things, but it seemed like that was only in relation to their impact of what it would do to the bottom line. Meaning, of course, we care if it's unsafe here. Of course, we care if we get a DCFS complaint. Of course, we care if state comes in, but that's because it interrupts what we're trying to do and that's make money. Brian had a lot of ideas, ways to improve the facility. Things like increasing the amount of staff and bringing in more quality food for the kids. But these improvements cost money and higher ups would push back. I was told by the HR director that was there when I hired that the facility had never been staffed in 20 years, not fully staffed. I staffed it and that's because you have to pay more because these 
frontline workers are making less than fast food. And so you have to pay and you could staff the place, but that gets pushed back, right? Because then you make less profits. And so even, even something as important as being fully staffed and being in compliance with the law, you know, there's pushback there. Make more money, cut more money. We have to do a wage adjustment. That's a problem. Or we have to run an, a radio ad for recruitment. That costs a lot of money. Like it's always just pushback. Food too. Our food was really, really, it, it was inedible. It wasn't good. It was causing restraints, fighting. The, the workers would get free food as part of um, a perk for working there. They wouldn't eat it. They would leave. It was so bad. So my second to last year, we were exceeding our goal by over a million dollars, bottom line. So crushing it for where we were. And I increased uh, some of our food vendors and I, I replaced the dietary team. And it ended up costing us $40,000 more a year. So 4%, not of our budget, of the excess, right? Nothing. And I had received a ton of pushback. I got a report from our regional finance person one day showing me how much more I pay per patient day in food than Provo Canyon and Benchmark and the sister facilities, showing that, yeah, even though it's a little bit more money, 40000 more, I'm paying a ton more than the sister facilities in my market. So it didn't seem right to me. So I called them and I got a hold of their income statements. I was actually still paying less than those facilities. The report was completely fabricated. And so even though I'm still paying less money on food than them, I got a made-up report to show me why I needed to cut food costs. So do you think those similar things are also happening with the CFO and CEO positions at Provo Canyon School? I would. I mean, I can only assume, right? Uh, they had a CFO come in after me who I became friends with. She relocated there. She ended up quitting just due to, you know, lies about her comp plan and make, promises were made to her and she met her side of that and they didn't meet there. So she eventually left and moved on. So I know she had a struggle with them. I, I'm not sure exactly on a specific like that, but I, I mean, it consume that's the style that. Right. So in your experience, is that for-profit driven mindset, the tone of the industry as a whole? I think when you're a publicly traded company, that has to be the tone because that's what it's all about. There are shareholders and stockholders and that's the point of being in business. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. 
So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I'm curious in what ways UHS encouraged C-level employees to cut costs. It's, it's, a, it's tricky, right? They can't come out directly and do that. You know, there's too many eyes on things. So I think... You get the vibe and the feeling of what you're supposed to do and you get pressure in certain areas when you're coming up short and, you know, then the pressure comes off. This is what I felt about Provo Canyon. They seem to have a ton of restraints and physical restraints with kids, but we're getting all the pressure and it's because we weren't making as much money. So, um, you know, they don't tell you exactly that's what it's about. I can tell you that the compensation structure for the C-level employees is 100% based on that. So I was paid on a extremely variable compensation plan to where my bonus as a CEO could exceed my base salary. And so that's fully based on net income. So the more money you can make the facility, the more money you make yourself. And the only way to do that is to get more youth in the beds in addition to cutting costs to increase that bottom line. Is that correct? That's correct. There's other things too, which we were successful with. You know, there's a lot of waste. So if you reduce expenses that aren't making sense, that's to a certain, there's a fine line there. If you reduce expenses too much to where it comes at the expense of patient safety or the quality of the program, you know, then then that's, I think, a decision for the CEO. But I can tell you the pressure is to constantly make more money. I know we'll talk more about staffing in a minute, but I think this part is relevant. When you talk about staffing and the facility was always, always short, when you, there were weeks when I would increase staffing to be closer to regulation, but still not even within compliance. And that received pushback because you increase costs. So you get that pressure all the time. You got to make more money. So we can get into staffing now. Um, what, what was the law at the time in regards to appropriate staffing? The law for Copper Hills was five to one ratio. 
So five patients to one staff and it could never be one-on-one. So if it's a single patient, there's two staff. Uh, The facility up north was different. They were licensed differently for a few different reasons. I'm assuming Provo was five to one. I think it was the same licensure. I'm not positive. Mm -hmm. And so we weren't close a lot of the time. We came in. It's a terrible culture there. It, It shifted a little bit towards the end. We focused on that, but it was bad. My first week there, I saw my truck in the background on the news. We had the local news there with someone in our raincoat and the hood over his head talking about how unsafe it is. They just came through a riot and, you know, a really, really bad culture. That was a staff, you know, bashing the place. So they didn't love it there. It was very, very negative, very, very anti-leadership. The us versus them was the floor staff, staff versus the leadership. And it was a tough culture. So with that, it's really hard to retain an employee and it's really hard to attract employees with where UHS sets the pay rates. And it, that part's tough with staffing. And so it takes a lot of effort to try and fix that. Um, you know, I, I was never certified in anything. In my role, I wasn't supposed to be. I, I didn't know the holding techniques. I was. It's called CPI, I wasn't CPI certified. Many, many weekends, I was in there working shifts on the floor because we were understaffed. So I don't think I should have been in there. I think it was probably safer that someone was there but we, I mean, we had five, six staff short, many, wow. like a lot of the time on the weekends. And how did that understaffing impact the facility? For sure, it made it more unsafe. I mean, it, you know, if the proper staff aren't there, the patients probably feel emboldened. I think it creates risk too for incidences. So, you know, there's some, Incidences happen, right? They're going to happen in this industry. There's some some pretty crazy examples, like you know that's a big deal, or like you know a sexual abuse issue with a staff and a child. And when those happen, for sure, they're the the employees terminated and it's addressed, of course. But I think what I had thought about in those issues is how did we let that happen? Why did we have a female staff alone with a male patient, or why did we have a 10 to one ratio. That's why these happen. So if we're following all of the guidelines, maybe they wouldn't have happened. Interesting. So it seems like UHS is, of course, incentivizing you all to either lower the wages or have less staff to increase the bottom line. And that creates sort of this chaos within the facility where they're not being appropriately watched. Um, You know, there's just not enough people to care for these youth appropriately. When the staff are there, what type of training does UHS provide these employees and can they appropriately serve the needs of these kids if they are staffed appropriately? So the training came up a lot. I think on your first part to your first question, UHS, I don't think they really want you to be understaffed. That just creates problems. I think what they want is you to figure it out and make more money. And if you need to pay higher wages to fix the staffing problem, you should be more creative and come up with a different way to fix that problem. So I think they want it fixed because it's better for them. They're just not using some obvious solutions to fix it because they cost money. And that's a huge battle. I I did succeed in a a market wage adjustment for that position one time. Um, I got that approved. It was a battle. I also, what I did too, I added an entire mid-layer of leadership. So it was nine shift managers to where 
this layer was not in the ratio. And so if somebody called off, that person would fall into ratio, which secured us. So we were never at a ratio again. Mm. I did not get approved to do that because of the cost, even though I set it up to where it would reduce overtime costs so much that it would actually be about a break even. I still didn't get approved. So I did it anyway. And licensing came in and praised the model and loved it. And so then UHS was okay with it. But yeah, I got denied on that to do it. Um, your second question with training, that's constant feedback from the staff is I'm not trained. I don't know how to do this. My shift manager isn't around. I don't see them on the weekends. They're outside smoking the whole shift. I don't know what to do. So the training, the training changed. It used to be, I think, a two-week training when I started there. Um, we got some new regional level leadership that cut it back to a 40-week training. And the, the feel was really, let's get through the training because we've got to get these new hires on the floor, which is true, right? We're, we're 10 people short. We've got to get them working because it's unsafe. And so I get the pressure with that, but we really lacked an ongoing on-the-floor training. We tried to fix that. Um, you know, we made some attempts at that, but I, I would assume that part is tough for all facilities. Everyone feels untrained because you want to get them to work. So can you describe what the training process is that they receive? I didn't do it. I'm familiar with, you know, what it was high level just due to my position there. I never sat through the training. I know they would get some clinical training, talk about what program we did, how the level system worked, you know, how you would give consequences. I know that they did a day or two of the CPI training, which is the hold techniques. Uh, I, at the end of that, they would do some, you know, physical holds with staff to try to learn it. I, I, the feedback you get is that's not enough. It's brand new to them, and it's it's pretty important. You know, going hands on holding a 17 year old angry adolescent male. You know, and it could be a small, young graduate female staff. And you know, I think that they that puts them in risky position. So I did get feedback, the training was not good. And assuming that's the same for other facilities. What about the de-escalation training? Because ideally, you know, these, these staff can appropriately provide that de-escalation so that they, that they don't have to get to that hold position. They do. Copper Hills got better at that towards the end. We got some more competent staff in and I, our restraints reduced. And I think it was because of the style. And so I think the style was, you know, a hold's not okay. You've got to stop doing this. You keep going into holds, you might be the problem here. And so our holds did reduce, which was great. It reduced our exposure. There, There is a vibe in the industry and I don't know where it is. I know it was at Copper Hills in the past where sometimes nursing, nursing can come in and do a, an IM injection and, you know, kind of tranquilize maybe is an okay word. And that's very common. And I think that's acceptable in certain situations. I think maybe Copper Hills was doing that too much at first. I assume that happens elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It feels abusive to me. It, it looks uncomfortable when you see it. Uh, so they try. It's best for the company if there is de-escalation and it's best for the company if there's a, a lower number of holes because your risks are minimized. But I, I think for sure they should and could invest a lot more in training and staffing, you know, and, and making sure it's safer. So these staff that feel unprepared going into this experience, what is their background? You get a lot of new grads psychology new grads this is a, a foot in the door type job 
They don't stay long. You have some lifers that do it because they love the kids and want to make a difference. They're great staff. They make hardly any money and they work all the time. So there's a few of those. For the most part, it's churn and burn type early 20s, new grad type staff. Primarily with them being within the psychology or medical field, because that's what they're wanting to pursue. Primarily, I think a lot of times in that industry too, you got someone who had a troubled youth that wants to make a difference. You know, they they empathize or sympathize with the kids. And so there's a lot of that. It's a different culture for the employees. You see a lot of that. A lot of people with the background, which I think is good. That's why they end up there. Different for me, right? I, would, I thought of that many times. I'm just a finance person. I don't even know what I'm doing here. But yeah, I'm not a social worker, but... You know, I, I think what drives employees there is trying to make a difference. And I do think a lot of staff have to do that or they don't last long. And do you feel sort of based on the structure, they're set up to succeed or are they kind of set up to fail? I don't think the training is adequate. I don't think the compensation is remotely close to what it should be. Um, I don't think the support is often there for employees when an issue goes down. I. I see it always deferring to what did they do wrong? Let's get them out. So I don't think it's there to retain and develop. And, you know, you, you could really have a career path for some of these people. And that's not common. Right. So they're looking at some of these particular issues with staff holding youth in, in a, you know, bad way or and they're not looking at the systemic issues of this is primarily possibly because it's the understaffing issue and because they're not trained appropriately they're just putting the blame on that particular staff which i agree i i don't think that that's fair i think this is a environment of chaos that causes a lot of issues um i'm curious if you feel that corporate was aware of what's actually happening inside these facility walls I, I think so. The vibe I got with at least the, the regionals and corporate people I interacted with had come up through that system. And so I think they had experienced it being employees, at least the ones closest to me. Uh, the finance leadership was based out of a hospital, too. And so I, I, I do think they I would guess they do. Yes, I, I think they saw it and knew exactly what's going on. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Primary avenues for funding were government funds and private money. While parents paid the majority of costs during the school's early decades, the UHS era ushered in much more sophisticated funding pipelines, choosing instead to focus on youth in state custody and publicly funded care. Utah's Medicaid rarely funds residential treatment and care, so the wards of PCS tended to come from out of state, particularly states from the North and the West. These states had contracts for care that were not beholden to any state lines. We would do a lot of Idaho, a lot of Alaska. A good referral source for both Copper Hills and Provo is reservations in Montana, uh, the Dakotas. We get a lot of kids from Alaska. We would have, a, I think a third of our facility was from California school districts. And so that's funded a little differently. That's funded by the actual school district in California paying. Uh, it's, it's with an education piece. So they're really there for our schools that are in the facility. So you get funded from the education piece. But for the most part, it's generally Medicaid funded. We had very, very few private pay. I think this says something about the quality of these facilities. We had max, we would have two out of 120. And wow. It's still expensive, but I think what that tells you is if somebody's in a position financially to choose a facility and they're going to pay out of pocket, they weren't coming to UHS. Wow. I'm shocked by that because, I mean, that is a huge shift from the 90s when it was primarily private pay to now where it's such a low percentage. I'm also fascinated that a third came from California school districts. That seems like an extremely high number at just one facility. Right. Yeah. Within those, I think we had 24 contracts with schools within California. Brian only worked at a UHS facility for four years before he began to feel the weight of the position. Things weren't above board and he could no longer turn a blind eye. 
When doing the financial records, Brian would often come across both nonprofit paperwork and for-profit corporate paperwork for his facility. Brian asked the previous CFO and his supervisor what this could mean. Neither of them seemed to know, directing him to contact the corporate headquarters. The response was a simple email containing the Articles of Incorporation. There didn't seem to be a simple answer. He was trying to understand why his school would have two tax IDs. After I left my position there, I just spent some time reflecting and a few things just stood out to me, which is what I shared with you that first time. This was one of them. So I'm the CFO and doing the accounting, like I said. And so I'm closing the books and we have two tax ID numbers. We're, we're two of different employers. Turns out that some states like California will only refer youth in state custody to nonprofit programs. And when that was the case, Provo and other UHS facilities represented themselves as such, despite being a multi-billion dollar corporation, all to secure the bottom line. Basically, we have the, the nonprofit to go and market ourselves as a nonprofit when we want to. We also have a for-profit because that's what it really is. This big business is no secret. Based on the Salt Lake Tribune's reporting, Provo Canyon School netted more than $37 million in government funding during a five-year period from seven states. And Copper Hills, where Brian worked, got $26.3 million. This is a massive, massive profit. Senator Gelser, the Oregon senator who walked us through transport in episode two, elaborates. One of the arguments that these organizations make, especially when they're doing the public placements, is we can do this for less money than you can. That makes no sense whatsoever. Like, how can they do what a state can't afford to do and make a profit? It's just, it, it's not possible. The only way to, to make a profit is to cut corners because they're private companies. You can't always look in to see how they're spending their money and where their money is going to. The other problem is a lot of these are, are backed by private equity firms or very large corporations and you know different organizations operate underneath them. And this protects them from liability. It protects them from um, kind of reputational loss when, when something goes wrong because all the different little programs have, have different names, but they go out into their communities and talk about being nonprofits because you can set up a little shell nonprofit underneath your for-profit. Um, Sequel Youth and Family Services, which had the majority of Oregon's kids out of state, is backed by a private equity firm. And then they had all these programs, about 45 of them, in states, and each of them was their own little corporation, either a nonprofit or an LLC. And what they would do, because the other thing we did in that 2015 um, child welfare reform bill, we required all of the financial records to be public. Every year they have to turn over their audited financial records and they are just a public record. So we had in Oregon's records, all of sequels uh, books. We could actually see how, what they would do is take um, you know, each facility could only keep one to two months operational cash on hand. The rest of it all got transferred up to the big sequel in the sky that nobody could get to. And all the services were provided in the name of this little nonprofit. So Lakeside, where Cornelius died, um, you know, they keep like a million dollars in liability insurance. And then they say, hey, uh, we have no more money. And sequel says, well, that's not us. We're just the services provider. And, you know, everybody else is left holding the bag. They don't even own the buildings. The buildings are owned 
um, you know, kind of in the nonprofit. So when they get chased out, they just pick up and leave. They have no skin in the game. They take their staff with them. They take their kids with them and they just keep making, making money. Helping kids. That is the preface that so many involved in this industry stand on. However, money talks and the tangled web of profit surrounding Provo and its parent company casts doubt on the ethics of the industry and specifically the school. The possibility for profit drew Williams and Christ in and the reality allowed it to expand far beyond the walls and into the world at large where other adults now look at troubled children with money hungry eyes. So who was the player in Provo's history who set it on a course for abuse all the way back in 1978? The one who developed much of Provo's treatment strategy, cementing aversive conditioning into the culture of what would become one of the longest running teen treatment facilities in the country. We asked that same question. We wanted to know why in the world did they think that a polygraph was a therapeutic instrument for troubled teenagers? And uh, we took depositions of the owners and uh, Gene Thorne became the spokesperson for the owners. He was a, a clinical psychologist, PhD level. And he was, um, he became the spokesperson for the facility. And he said that he did it based on research. And we asked who did the research? And he said, I did. And I said, where did you do the research? And he said, at Provo Canyon School. And we said, is there anything published in any journal anywhere in the world that backs this up? And he said, no, my research is sufficient. Next time on Trapped in Treatment. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.